0: Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft.
1: I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us, a journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join
0: us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach.
1: Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A.
0: Holy shit. You actually did it. There was like, a lot I of pressure. I thought you were going to be all like, uh,
1: Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T. Z- <laughs> For real? You can sing it backwards, too? <laughs> um, I don't know. I was starting to get a little, little worried at the end. I was like, I don't know where I'm going with yeah. this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Good Lord. Well, we all know that Hannah is a genius whose brain thinks in ways that I can't comprehend because I'm a normal human being.
1: I literally only learned how to do that because my mom left me in the car once as a child while she went grocery shopping. And I had one of those like board books or whatever that had the alphabet. So I just kept repeating it backwards over and over and over.
0: I like how your threshold to genius is being bored in the car one time.
1: One time learning to say the alphabet backwards. That's like my only party trick. I Which one is time, why I don't get invited to many parties.
0: I one time memorized the entire, like the shortest book of the Bible once. Oh, nice! Uh, couldn't remember one single word from it. Now, but <laughs> I did that one time. You still retained it though, like a real genius. Well, okay, that's like a, a little a, different like than a whole who, book of the Bible. Who? Well, okay, but it was the shortest.
1: It's one. like what twenty-six letters. Hannah, <laughs> stop ruining!
0: My gosh, darn! I'm sorry. Segue. I
1: cannot take. A compliment.
0: You're a genius, like someone who's capable of doing multiple things on one project and creating something that thousands of people identify with. I just figured out why I was so quiet that whole time. I'd been talking into the back of the microphone.
1: (laughs) That's hilarious. You've been doing this how long?
0: I'm a professional podcaster. And by professional, I mean we've got two patrons.
1: (laughs) You just ruined your own segue, by the way. Hio Miyazaki. That was a great segue. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> That's who we're talking and about. And congrats here. on pronouncing a name right.
0: Yeah, I had to practice that. Like you had to practice the alphabet backwards. <laughs> it's as hard for me to say his name as someone can has a, a time saying the alphabet backwards.
1: Seems legit. Yeah. But yeah. So, Hiyo uh, Miyazaki. Who is he, Tyler?
0: Man, you're you're not excited about this at all. You're just like, yeah, all right, let's talk about it. We're talking about freaking Hayao Miyazaki, dude. We're talking about Studio Jubilee, dude. We're talking about My Neighbor Totoro, Princess
1: Mononoke,
0: dude. Let's get excited, Hannah.
1: I I just don't do the surfer accent when I get excited about stuff.
0: <laughs> talking about some anime.
1: I, I maintain my normal cadence. <laughs>
0: I guess. I might need to go turn down my microphone now because I've been talking into the back of it. So I did all of my pre-stuff for the back of it. Hey, Cam, can you hear me? Hey, Cameron, can you turn down my mic
1: a little bit? It's just like a look into our process.
0: I'm in number two. Check, check, check. That's better. That's yeah, that's better. That's good. Thank you. Hayao Miyazaki! We gotta talk about this guy. It's a big deal. Hannah, did you watch did you watch any
1: of the movies? I did watch some of the i I'd already seen one and a half of them.
0: Which one and a half? Uh
1: Spirited Away okay. and Princess Mononoke, which I then finished. Uh huh. Uh and enjoyed quite a bit. And then quite um a bit. I tried to watch another one. And this was because you had recommended that I watch the movies before I start reading the book, which made a lot of sense once I started reading the book. Yeah. Right. Um but i just went off of like what the other movies in the category were mm. so the one i watched next was not actually directed by him oh no which it one it was did you just do? it was the cat one.
0: Oh, uh, the cat returns the cat
1: returns no decent movie but then I found out later that he didn't direct that one, so I was or like, "Or oh. write
0: it." All he did was be like, "Oh yeah, that'd be an interesting idea." Yeah, it
1: was just a Studio Ghibli. Is Somebody it Ghibli else? or Jubilee?
0: I thought it was Ghibli, but Ghibli. I, okay, I, I think it's Ghibli. <laughs> I pronounce all of our names wrong all the time. <laughs> I uh, think I've heard
1: it, Studio Ghibli.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so so you've seen two movies that he has written and directed, mm-hmm. um, or not directed, uh, produced. Because he didn't direct all of them.
1: He didn't direct all of the Studio Ghibli ones, but he directed the two that I had watched previously. Yes.
0: (laughs) So, are you excited? Were you excited after watching stuff for this guy? Do you understand why people are like in it? What's your
1: as with many of the people we talk about on the show? Reading about his life made me more interested in the movies. Mm -hmm. I'm not an anime person. Okay. And I never have been, mm-hmm. so I don't, I can't say I would necessarily watch the movies just because. Sure. Uh, although there is one, and I'll i talk more about it later, but there is one that after oh, reading Hannah's about-
0: pulling out the, I'll talk yeah, about it more I'll later. I'll talk about it
1: more later. There is one movie that I plan to watch later because when I was reading about it, I was like, oh, I'd actually like to see this one.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's get into <laughs> so it. Let's, let's get into it. An anime nerd and someone who has seen two and a half animes.
1: <laughs> I, will say, I was talking with my sister earlier today before I came to record this. I was telling her what I was doing later. And she's like, who's that? And I'm like, have you ever heard of Spirited Away? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's like a weird movie. I'm a normal person. I don't watch that stuff.
0: It's pretty weird. But it's a good movie, man.
1: And allegedly, uh, more young people in America are getting into it because my sister was like, "Oh yeah, I know a lot of cool people who are getting into anime now." Yeah, lots so it's of not cool just people. the nerds like you, Tyler.
0: Right. Well, we'll see. That was
1: like a diss and a yeah. compliment at the same time.
0: Hannah, let's get into the early life of Hayao Miyazaki.
1: So Hayao Miyazaki. That's, <laughs> Sorry, That's was... how we have to say it, just
0: so we can remember it. Sorry, audience. That's how we have to say it.
1: He was born on January 5th, 1941, in Tokyo, Japan. Um, His dad was the director of Miyazaki Airplane, which was a manufacturing company that built parts for zero fighter planes that were used during World War II. Um, And then, so this job that his dad had, as well as, like, his grandfather, who had been a pretty smart businessman um, as well, this led to the family having, like, pretty good financial success especially around wartime um and this allowed them to stay comfortable even after the war while so many others in japan were suffering because of course world war ii did not end well for japan no um <laughs> notoriously but yeah, that is the understatement of the uh, 1900s perhaps <laughs> um <laughs> all
0: right here's all you guys have to know about world war ii we're just gonna skip ahead
1: yep but all you have to
0: know is didn't turn out well for japan That's all we're going to talk about. (laughs)
1: Uh, Spoiler alert, not because World War II played a huge role in his life and so many others there. Oh, yeah. Including uh, when he was three years old, 1944. His family actually had to evacuate their home um, due to continuing air raids. Um, It was a really dangerous place to be when bombs and and stuff are falling out of the sky. Um, He had a, a pretty traumatic memory, which was like sort of it. It was debatable. Accurate. Um, His older brother has a different telling of this story, but Hayao uh, Miyazaki remembers when they were leaving um, their home. They were in like a little truck, and he remembers this woman with a baby running up and begging them to let her in. And his family was like, Nope, no room. No room. Uh, His brother, who was two years older, said it was a man not a woman and Mm -hmm. that he said he had a child at home which like sort of changes the dynamic I guess there's like the sexism of oh yeah a mother with a baby is way more uh, helpless than a dude with a child Yeah, Um, but like regardless this incident really stuck with um, uh, Miyazaki and kind of led to him feeling a lot of guilt growing up. Sure. Um, did
0: you, I'm sorry, real quick, yeah. did you read the Miyazaki World A of Life of, in Art? Yes. So we read the same thing. We read thing, the same biography uh, for once. Which is written by Susan Napier. Nap- Napier? Yeah. yeah. Napier, something like that. Um, and yeah, she went deep into that. She went deep into the whole psychology of him as a child and like how the war affected him and, and all it that. It makes
1: a lot of sense because obviously you've got the trauma of just the war itself and then also kind of his internalized guilt. At, like his family was pretty well off. His family was pretty well off because they made parts yeah. for planes that were used in the war. And yeah. Japan, obviously not blameless in the war either. They were doing a lot of bad stuff in Korea and China mm-hmm. uh, and responsible for a lot of violence there. So he had all of that guilt process plus y- you know seeing his family turn away someone in need. Possibly leave them for dead as the city's getting bombed.
0: Yeah, I, they seriously had, um, they made a fortune. They made their name off of uh, creating, they would manufacture the timing belts for the engines of the planes. So um, that was that was a big deal. But then even further, after a lot of the bombings and um, devastation to their own country people, they used that as an opportunity to make more money. And they did so by investing in specific ways uh, for, like, lumber and wood and things. And so, like, yeah, even his- further on, they continue. It's not like, oh, we did a bad thing. We're done. Like, this is a... Th- his family, they are all businessmen and entrepreneurs and people who are seeking that bottom dollar. And that's where he came from.
1: Yeah. Which I mean, obviously, as a child, none of that is his fault, but
0: well, he—I mean, he directly said, "We need to invest in wood right now." That Dad, was Grandpa. We need to.
1: That was his Grandpa after the earthquake in <laughs> Japan. Yeah, yeah. Four-year-old uh, Hayao Miyazaki was like, "Dad, you know what? I think we need to uh, exploit people even further." <laughs> I
0: think uh, the problem is our our investing portfolio isn't diverse enough, Dad. As a four-year-old, I would suggest that we go ahead and stock up on wood. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Always strong in- investment advice. Yeah. Screw gold. Go yeah. wood. <laughs>
0: go wood. <laughs>
1: um, so yeah, so after they evacuated their home, uh, again, they were able to live quite comfortably. They moved in with his grandfather in like um, a guest house on his grandfather's estate, which was about 60 miles outside of Tokyo. Um, and this was really kind of a a beautiful setting for him and his brother to live in. Um, he had, you know, acreage, uh, a pond, waterfall, beautiful garden, yeah. um, and kind of this, uh, the author that we read her biography of him, uh, she she posited that this is kind of why he got so interested in gardens, especially secret gardens. Like in mm-hmm. his reading, he was attracted to, to books that had these themes. Uh, he read a lot of English yeah. language, English literature growing up, including the secret garden itself. Um, and then later, kind of these these Japanese gardens and even less traditional like spin-offs of Japanese gardens become a strong theme in his movies. right. Um, so she she poses the uh, the assumption that I think is quite reasonable that he was influenced by. Growing it's also up
0: there. interesting every single one of her assertions of like, you know, this could be a thing here this could be a psychological wound here. Like she goes on record as saying, oh, he went ahead and said no. So all of that.
1: Yeah, he did not like the like trauma um yeah. implications, like people saying that he was working through his trauma and his art. He was like, nah, I'm not about that which I think could go either way. Like, yeah, that could be true. But also he's kind of from a culture that emphasizes being strong, especially for men and yeah. like stoic. Yeah. Um so some of that could just be be himself.
0: I, yeah, he's just trying to put up the facade of like, no, I'm just creative and I can come up with stuff. And it's yeah. like, look, man your art doesn't lie to be honest. Like, I think you're lying. I honestly do think he was lying because there's so many threads and uh like the, the mother complex that he had and stuff like that all comes through in his stories. And we see that, but he denies all of it. Like he, he wants to be this image of like, no, I, I lived my life and that's, that's has nothing to do with why i create what i create
1: yeah he said i think there's no healing from trauma you just like get over it everybody, and move on yeah you,
0: and everybody has trauma that's why you guys all think that my stories revolve around my trauma <laughs> because you have trauma
1: yeah. I don't have it. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the problem. You are. But yeah, and you mentioned um, his his relationship with his mother and the, the complex he had there. So his mom had tuberculosis from 1947 to 1955 mm-hmm. and spent the first few years of her sickness in the hospital. Tuberculosis was like rampant back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see that in his movies there's a ton of characters who either have tuberculosis specifically or some other like illness yeah. that's kind of similar
0: something else but then like i think it's in uh, totoro where you you're not sure what the mom has but then through either novelizations or other stuff that's canon we find out through that stuff that it's it's tuberculosis like everything that afflicts people is tuberculosis (laughs)
1: back then so yeah yeah,
0: definitely no trauma there ha Miyazaki
1: (laughs) well the weird thing is I mean do you know like how romanticized tuberculosis was back then like worldwide I think it was in England where people would like want to get it because it was seen as like a sexy disease you just kind of waste away really yeah it was like almost a fetish but not, really like, yeah
0: maybe we'll talk about this more when we get into like Dracula or something because yeah. I know that's a big part of that
1: but. it was so weird people like romanticized this illness so much because it was seen as like so cool and like especially women it was like very feminine to just wither away to nothing yeah of course like there's kinda something like, sexy about like COVID starving 19. it's
0: exactly the same we're fetishizing the shit out of it we're
1: like oh you have COVID how sexy oh do
0: you want to cough on me <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gross. Do not cough on people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if there's one thing you learned from our show, don't cough on don't people. Don't cough
1: on people. It's not nice. That's all
0: Miyazaki was trying to get across. Don't you might cough give him
1: TB or COVID. Or
0: COVID. <laughs> TB or COVID.
1: But yeah, so with his mom being sick so much, um, him and his older brother had to take on a lot of extra responsibility. Um, and there was always the constant fear in the back of their minds that she might die at any minute. Yeah. Um. So this led to him kind of having a very lonely um, and stressful childhood one of the quotes that was in the book was um, Miyazaki has said I have no enjoyable memories from childhood Yeah, that is a strong statement. It is. Even, I agree like some of the most miserable authors we've talked about on this show they had st- something. They had something happy yeah.
0: Nicholas Sparks would go around beating kids up with his with his lunch pail but he, he was, still had fun. Was that him or his brother?
1: Ew. <laughs> uh, I think his brother... Oh, his mom told him to.
0: Was it him or his brother that got it, though? I
1: One of them got
0: the lunch pail and knocked around some kids. That's that's some badass shit right there.
1: Yep. And then he went on to write sappy love stories. <laughs> 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 but yeah, uh, Miyazaki's like, nope, no happy memories. Yeah. Uh, he also had a really bad relationship with his dad. Yeah. Um, His dad sounded kind of like a douchebag.
0: Well, he's... A- I hate to play the uh, product of your time card. <laughs> Everyone should know this. If you listen to the Lovecraft episode, you should know. Tyler
1: does hate this card. I
0: hate the product of your time card. Um, but I think his dad was a product of, of the culture, <laughs> to be completely honest. I At a certain point, a culture is so well defined by how the men are and you know who you are. That even if nowadays we, we look back and we're like, how could you possibly think that that's okay? It was okay, you know? And uh, and I think that that was a turning point for a lot of people. And uh, it was a turning point for Miyazaki. And I think that he saw what his dad was like and went, I don't want to be like that.
1: But if he saw what his dad was like back then and was like, this ain't cool.
0: I don't know. I mean, I I deal with that with my parents, where like they are a certain way, and I don't agree with who they are. Um, but I believe that they are the way that they are because of the generation that they're in, and I think that it's okay for them to be that way. I don't think it's okay for me to be that way though. And now it's 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 we see a much a much broader line between who Miyazaki was and who his father was. But I don't necessarily think that he would see as broad of a line or Mm. if there was more broad of a line, it's because he actively created that distance because he just didn't, he just didn't like that. He didn't, his sensibilities didn't appreciate who his dad was and who his dad was, was a typical mid 1900s, businessman in Japan.
1: Yeah. So some of the specific complaints that he has about his dad um, was he publicly criticized him, which seems very like publicly criticizing your dad for this stuff seems a little (laughs) iffy. Uh, I don't know if I would do that, but he said that his dad lacked responsibility. He accused him of selling substandard airplane parts to the military Mm -hmm. um, and other like ethically sketchy business practices. Um, And to really drive the nail into the the coffin, he said his father never said anything, quote, particularly lofty or inspiring. Sure. And then there was the sex stuff. Yeah, the sex stuff. (laughs) Apparently, when Miyazaki was in high school, his uh, dad would say to him that, when I was your age, I was already paying for geisha girls. Yep. Like, this was just a totally normal thing. And uh, Susan Napier mentions that in the biography. She's like, the culture at the time was like, if you were a good businessman, if you were you know successful you were gonna have extramarital affairs yeah i don't think she said specifically that his dad did but i felt she like that ma- was the uh, implication i thought
0: from what i read she made it very clear that he was having extramarital affairs
1: yeah that was uh, what i gathered yeah. from it i tried reading it back a couple times and i'm like i don't think she ever specifically said that he did right. but this sounds because like it's a dude probably
0: not something that she can validate. verify yeah exactly uh she's not going to go talk to his parents and be like, "Hey, did you fuck another lady?" <laughs> They're dead. <laughs> yeah. Um so I I think that yeah, I, like I said before, I think that it's just he's he, like he's he saw who his dad was and he didn't respect it. Uh, Which I understand like at some point you have to make a decision on who you're gonna be and it's either gonna be Like your parents or Or probably completely different. I don't think that there's a middle ground I honestly don't believe that someone can have a middle ground between those things and I think that he chose the latter and And he said everything that my dad stood for I will not I will be a good person and I will be active in my beliefs and what I put my mind to, I'm going to put everything into. And I, th- I think that he did that. I really believe that.
1: I think that's an interesting theory. You're either like your parents or completely not. I need to find the person who like, bucks that trend and is sort of in the middle.
0: <laughs> if you're in the middle, call us yes. or email us at, Le- at lewisandlovecraft.com. Send us your that's story <laughs>
1: and we'll read it on the show.
0: Maybe if I remember our actual email <laughs> and say that.
1: So, yeah, so, I mean, with that that bitter relationship with his dad, um, he was much closer with his mom. I think initially there was, like, more complications to that relationship because she was sick all the time. He was more of the caretaker, yeah. whereas traditionally your mom is the one who takes care of you. Yeah. Um, But especially as they grew older, um, one of the things that they would do is, like, debate really ferociously sometimes because they were on opposite political ends of, of the spectrum.
0: Nobody's ever heard of that No, no. Nah.
1: Definitely not.
0: Nobody's ever argued with their parents on a political yeah. spectrum.
1: But they were still really close because his mom was like very strong willed, uh, very intelligent. Um, and I think that probably influenced some of his characters later on. too. Oh,
0: absolutely. Just the idea of loving someone so much that you completely disagree with. And and. Um, The author, the the biographer here, even points out that there were times where he would be in tears. And
1: leave the room. And leave the
0: room because they're fighting so much. And he respected her so much that he couldn't just cut her out. He couldn't just be like, well, go fuck yourself. I'm done with this (laughs) shit. Like, he needed her to understand where he was coming from. But she's such a stubborn, you know, strong-headed and conservative person that... It, she just couldn't, she couldn't see his point of view and she wouldn't.
1: Or maybe he was wrong.
0: Or, and maybe he was wrong, but he was so, like, they were both so strong headed. And, and so I, again, I get that where like you are completely opposite of your parent, but you still love them so much and you want them to see your point of view, but they just, they just don't. Yeah. I understand that completely.
1: Yeah. And uh, luckily, it should be noted that eventually she did get over her, her tuberculosis and lived into her 70s or whatever. Mm-hmm. So by the time they were having these uh, really aggressive debates, she was very healthy. Yeah,
0: she wasn't like hacking up <laughs> yeah. a lung while she was trying to tell him that he's wrong.
1: No coughing blood. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, want to move into school yeah, issues? let's do it.
0: Let's get, I mean, we got nothing else to talk about at this point, right?
1: Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, going to school, uh, Susan Napier didn't talk a whole lot about the like educational side of school Um, but she did mention the very pertinent fact that he loved art and drawing Um, especially planes, tanks, battleships and other military machinery that was his jam he wasn't very good at drawing people Um, but he loved those sorts of things and he also said that that like kind of made him cool among the (laughs) among his uh, schoolmates like he couldn't hold his own in a fight but people liked the planes that he drew
0: yeah Uh, I love that I love I love when kids can like know that they've found a little niche for being popular i think that i i never quite found that i was always on the edge of that i was a kid that learned how to make like how to make like origami and shit. Oh my God. And so like I made friends doing that, but I wasn't like, we weren't the cool group of friends. We were the weird people that make origami on our lunch.
1: I think it was probably a little bit easier, easier for us because it wasn't common, at least when I was in school for people to beat other people up. Oh, so yeah. it wasn't as high stakes. Like I, right. d- it wasn't a, a matter of physical harm yeah. to be able to make the bullies like you. Yep. So I could just be like, fuck it. I don't care if you like me or not. <laughs> I'm going to sit over here and read my book.
0: Yeah. Uh, just a, just a quick word. Anybody who's listening who might've gone to, uh, what was it? What, where did I go to school? it was in Pittsburgh. It was at,
1: <laughs> maybe that was rougher Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. It
0: was the rough. It was the hot times. No, it was in Bethel <laughs> park right outside of Pittsburgh. And it was gosh, darn it. Neil. Who's the guy that walked on Neil Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, middle school, sixth, fifth grade. It was middle school in fifth grade because that's how they do it on the East Coast. And me and a couple of dudes, I don't remember their names, but we decided we were going to um, give an origami uh, samurai hat to every teacher in the school. Oh my God. So for like a week straight, all lunch and recess, we would just sit there and make like, we made like hundreds of origami (laughs) hats. And then like right before we were supposed to give them to the teachers, we moved back to Oregon. Aww. So I never got to give those origami hats to the teachers and see how, how disappointed they were in me for, for wasting my time.
1: That was a very sad story. But also, uh, if you had been born any like decade previously, you totally would have got your ass kicked I, in well, school.
0: I was a big kid. I don't know if I would have gotten my ass kicked. I would have gotten made fun of for sure. and I probably was. I just didn't do it to my face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's that's inspiring. Yeah. I'm sorry the teachers never got the origami I mean, samurais. They might have
0: gotten them. I just wasn't there. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, Miyazaki is an art genius. Yeah,
1: so he was, like, really good from a very young age. His brother, um, you know, said that he was really impressed with how – much better his two years younger brother was at art than him yeah um and one of the funny stories that she tells is like there was an elementary school art competition and both brothers uh submitted drawings i think it was like of the view off your balcony or something of like your a garden. garden yeah um so they both submitted drawings um and then the brother saw um, a couple of teachers standing in front of uh Hayao miyazaki's uh submission mm-hmm. staring at it and they were like that's too good like implying that yeah, an, adult an adult helped an adult him with did it. That, yeah. So uh, the, the older brother ended up winning the competition. Yeah, technically
0: he got second place. And Miyazaki should have gotten first.
1: Yeah, but they thought but he cheated. The
0: damn red tape. The bureaucracy wouldn't let it happen. <laughs> and that's when he decided... He's going leftist.
1: <laughs> yeah that that was the moment. That was not, the moment. Not college or high school or anything. Nope. That moment, he was like, communism is the way to go.
0: <laughs> I shall I shall take on the Marxist way. Yes. And my pictures will be the best.
1: <laughs> the artists will uh, overturn the schools and <laughs> let and the run people the decide
0: who's the better artist.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, he did. He was seriously into art. Um, but yeah. in Japan at the time, the goal of becoming like a professional. Uh, animator was basically non-existent like i mean
0: we're talking the 50s yeah we're talking the 50s in japan yeah like all you do is work like that you don't you don't draw that's not a thing
1: yeah the ideal is like the white collar businessman who yeah. slaves away at a desk all day and just works himself to the bone uh to provide for his family like that's the ideal there some boring desk job or or executive job
0: yeah where the only fun you get is fucking other chicks not yeah. your wife
1: yeah <laughs> Maybe that's why they uh prioritize that so much. I guess so like you're absolutely miserable twenty four seven yeah, hire a sex worker
0: might as well. what's the point?
1: yeah, so so uh Miyazaki had to be like a little bit more I guess realistic or like at least cage his goals a little bit. um he really wanted to become a is it pronounced manga or manga uh, either. Oh really? I know
0: that lots of people might disagree with me. It's either. Okay. Just like if you don't believe in God, I don't care. <laughs> you can also pronounce manga or manga however you want.
1: I'm gonna go with manga because I feel like somebody like schooled me on that one. I call it
0: I legitimately now that I think about it, could not tell you what I called it before this <laughs> moment. Let's see. I'm gonna try on both hats. So I was reading this manga the other day. That eh, sounds all right. All right. <sighs> Hey, dude, have you heard of this new manga? Nope. Don't like that. We're don't going like manga? manga? I'm going with manga.
1: Okay. I liked that glimpse into how your brain works. Like, I just picture two voices going back and forth, yeah. sounding yeah. things out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So being being a manga artist was yeah, like the See? best that you could hope for back then as right. like an art career. Um, so he kind of made that his goal. Um, and And yeah, that was really what he strove for. Um, And then I also wanted to mention that, like, as he's going to school, this is a really turbulent time in Japan still. Like, the war is over, but there's a lot of lasting effects from it. Um, And Miyazaki has reflected on this a lot. He noted that if he'd been born even a little bit earlier, he probably would have been a zealous, quote, military youth. Sure. Um, and before the war, Japanese education really emphasized sacrifice for nation above everything else. Yep. Um, but after the war, so when he's in school, American troops were still occupying the country, and um, schooling changed and focused more on democracy and free exchange of ideas. They introduced, like, debate clubs and stuff. Um, and the image of pre-war Japan was presented as in a really negative light it was just sure. a series of terrible actions and as a result of this miyazaki said he hated japan when he was a kid yeah he
0: went on record as saying that at at one point i hated japan yeah. and its culture like everything that it stood for
1: which is just crazy how much of a difference like 10 years makes yeah. if he'd been born 10 years earlier he could have been a totally different well, person and
0: and imagine imagine how i mean let's take a step back let's take a, a almost a 100 year view back right and you, you start to see the way that things play out. And the, the culture pr- post-World uh, War II was very anti-imperialist Japan and uh, anti-war Japan. And he got sucked right into that, into a, a, a counterculture. The, the same thing that happened in America where people were disillusioned by war and they realized how awful it is. But I feel like there was almost a a further play uh, almost in America where there where we had the free love and you know counterculture the hippie culture and that was a movement within the people of America that was never like a solid thing it was it had touched a lot of places and it had spread really far it was still a a niche thing um, for Japan imagine that but it is government uh it's a government installation like Mm -hmm. it is not just accepted but pushed by the government and colleges and your education to like we are not going to go to war we are we are that that lifestyle is evil.
1: Yeah. That was something that was in the constitution at one point. I don't know if it still is in the Japan. Japanese constitution. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I I saw at one point Miyazaki uh, had like protested removing that from the Japanese constitution. So, yeah, they really yeah. they embrace that anti-war stance uh, Yeah. The,
0: what you're talking about. I'm going to look it up just so I can say it's official uh, Japanese um, anti-war amendment. Article nine, yeah, Article nine of the Japanese Constitution. Um, the Constitution came into effect on May third, nineteen forty-seven, following World War Two. In its text, the state formally renounces the sovereign right of belligerency and aims at an intentional peace based on justice and order. Um, and basically, it, it it basically says that they refuse war, like, and and it's. I, Look, I'm a white guy from Oregon in America. (laughs) I don't know any. I don't know anything about Japanese culture to the to where I can speak about it in a public forum. Uh, So it's probably much more nuanced and uh, and complicated than what I just read on Wikipedia. (laughs) So give me some grace here, but I'm sure there are some
1: circumstances where Japan is still like. From what
0: we've learned and what we understand, it seems like Japan was like no more war ever again <laughs> and miyazaki was all for that it's like cool was is all for is, that yeah
1: he's still like very much a pacifist um so yeah so moving on uh to college he uh studied political science and economics um in in university which i she didn't say much about like why i'm guessing just because that's the thing to do when you're a young man in 1950s uh, Japan. Yeah. But while he was there, he did join the Children's Literature Research Club. Yeah. Um, And in his free time, he would visit his art teacher from middle school, um, and they would drink and sketch and talk about politics and life, et cetera, et cetera. And this
0: is actually a big deal. The the Children's Literature Research Club was uh, a big deal because before Miyazaki had joined the college you know, time of his life, there were lots of, of study clubs and things that you could join. Um, but because Japanese was changing so much that those, those clubs that were very specific in what they would study and try to replicate and, and lean towards in your, I, I don't know. I don't even know what, a, a mo- I guess like just a, a modern day version would just be like a, like a, I don't, a club. You you go hang out with people. you, you You hang out and talk about interesting things, but you use the idea that you're studying for school as a as a way to kind of approach that like legitimize it. Yeah. um and the school system really started to shut down on what was allowed uh, because they were pushing the anti-war thing that they they really made it hard to just open up a club and whatever. And so the the best one for art that he could join was the children's literature research club because there was so much. There were so many, like, drawings and and picture books for children's literature.
1: Gotcha. Um, and then she did know in, in the biography that one of the other time, things uh-huh. that was changing during his time in college was that was when um, Marxism was becoming a lot bigger on universities. Um, so this kind of like solidified his leftist political leanings. Sure. And um, also contributed, obviously, to the, the movies that we're going to see later on with a lot of them have those utopian yeah. ideals. Um, so, yeah. So this, this was a big time in his life. Um, And then he starts his career pretty much right away in 1963 at the age of 22. uh, He takes a position as an entry level animator at Toei Animation, which is uh, at the time Asia's largest producer of animation. And what he was doing was he was an in-betweener, which I had to like kind of look up what that was. So that's basically like the main animators draw... The most important parts of a scene, like the facial expressions and stuff. And then the in-betweeners go in and have to draw all the other frames to complete the movement.
0: So, yeah, basically, if you if you don't know anything about animation, here's a very quick idea of understanding how animation works. When you record a movie on your phone, uh, most or I should say standard, because nowadays it's getting crazy, but standard... (laughs) Uh, video works at 24 frames per second. That's how technically it's 24.7 frames per second. 24.97. 9.7? Seven? I think so. Oh, okay. Uh, there you go. Uh, Hannah knows more than me, and I paid $30,000 to know that. Um, I'm not 100% <laughs> sure.
1: I just think that's what Premiere shows me when I'm exporting oh, something. Okay, okay. I,
0: I thought it was 24.5, but I think you are right. I think it's closer to 2025. 20, but the point is 24 frames per second is what the human eye... Can see at. So when you film you want to match 24 frames per second. Um, that way it all looks smooth. It looks just like it would be in real life. Um, and now we've gotten to a point where 30 frames per second, 60 frames per second, that way things look even more smooth and clear and all that shit. But if you're an animator, you have to do 24 frames per second. And if you're making a movie that is an hour and a half long, that's 90 minutes times 60, which is what is that? Uh that's uh, three hundred and sixty. Uh, we're so
1: bad at math, man.
0: Ninety times sixty three thousand six hundred and something. Uh
1: five thousand four hundred. Damn, I was so wow.
0: close. <laughs> um five thousand frames, right? Times twenty four. Or five thousand five thousand seconds times twenty four? Something so like
1: that. So one
0: hundred twenty nine thousand six hundred. There you go. You have to draw. Each of those so animators have figured out especially in Japan they started to figure out faster ways of doing things well not just in Japan I mean Walt Disney was doing this as well animators in general started to figure out how to how to make that process go faster you have your main artists who are doing a scene and they draw the important parts and then and so you have somebody who's punching someone right and you draw the first frame where they're gearing up to punch. The next frame where they're stretching out, and then the next frame where they're making contact, and then the next frame where the person reacts. That So they draw four. Then you have the other slums who have to go in and draw every single frame between those four.
1: And it looks like they're basically, like, tracing... But slightly moving yeah. is one of the processes that I saw.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if you ever watch uh, a documentary or show where you see someone like and they have one sheet and they like lift it up and then draw something and then move it down and then they lift it up and draw, that's what they're doing. That's an in betweener. They are actively redrawing the same thing, but in movement to to create the the image of twenty four frames per second. So that's what Miyazaki was doing. He got a shit job for one of the for the biggest animation companies in Japan at the time um and and he was at the bottom of the totem pole.
1: For sure. Um but he he was a good worker. He had a strong work ethic. He was known for producing sketches very fast. Yeah. Uh which you got to do when you're doing all the shit. When you're in betweener
0: that's your best your best asset is quickly being able to rep- replicate things.
1: Yeah, but the other thing he was known for was uh, kind of butting in in realms that were not really his. So yeah. um, one of the the stories that I liked was at the time Toei was uh, producing a space film, Gulliver's Travels Beyond the Moon, um, and the original conclusion featured the main character and his sidekick's uh, basically beating some evil robots and rescuing a good robot princess uh-huh. who has been transported around in a giant chess piece shaped like a horse for some reason. Um, and Miyazaki suggested to the writers that, hey, uh, when the heroes open the chess piece, it should be a human girl, not a robot. Yep. And I mean, this was just like a crazy thing for him as a relative newbie to... To suggest, especially since there were so many people above him in the hierarchy, uh, the director, the producer, even other in betweeners had been there longer. Uh, but they liked his idea and they put it in the final storyboard. So that kind of became like his his thing at at Toei was, you know, letting people know what his ideas were.
0: Yeah, not being afraid to to push his ideas. Um, and I'm scrolling through it real quick. Uh, not the whole movie, just the end, because the end is, to be honest, this was a career-defining movement, m- move on his part, where he, he took an idea that people had already decided, oh, this is good enough to be a movie. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and spend hundreds of thousands of hours
1: drawing. drawing
0: this movie. So we we got the story. You know, we're good. And then he's like, yeah, but it could be better. And oh I just saw that. Right like twenty
1: three years old or something. Yeah.
0: And and he does something in it where he uh where he says, Hey, there's a girl inside of it and and you can see her hair move. And it shows that she is a real person and that she's not just a robot. And it like defines his style. Like that was a style defining thing because throughout the rest of his movies, if you watch them, hair in his movies is so important to emotion and connection, especially like I, I can't help but see princess Mononoke when, you know, Ashitaka is like, like getting like anticipating something. His hair literally starts to kind of like grow around him a little bit and fly up into the air. Like, and it, and as a kid, I didn't understand what was happening, but I understood the emotion. Now as an adult, I can like dissect that and I can see what's happening. Um, so it, it's just it honestly, it was kind of awe inspiring on my part to hear this story of this guy who's like, who's so confident in what he can do that he's he's willing to put his career on the line to be like, yeah, there's a better way of, of ending this movie. Could you imagine? I would Could not you have imagine? the guts
1: to do that? I think you would. I would not.
0: <laughs> you think that I would go out of my way to tell someone if, let's say, Steven Motherfucking Spielberg <laughs> takes me on as you know, uh, blah blah blah. I don't. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm on set. I'm I'm capable of of helping Steven somehow. You think that I would put my job at risk and say, "Hey, Steven, I know that you've been probably working on this for the last few years, and the studio has <laughs> paid." hundreds of millions of dollars on this but look man i've got a different ending in mind
1: well he did say it to the writers not the uh producer or director at the time he was kind of specific as to who i i could see you saying it to the writers maybe not steven spielberg right maybe not the person who could literally squash you like a bug (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah i If either of us were going to do it, it would be you. I would just be like, you know what? This is my idea. It's probably worthless. Uh, I'm not going to make any waves.
0: I love this script. It's great. (laughs) Schindler's List, so good. But I think we can end it differently.
1: Oh, my God. What an example. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) I think it needs a happy ending.
0: (laughs) You ever think about letting everyone live? Just an idea. Just to throw that one out there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, float that by uh, George R.R. Martin.
0: Yeah. Next time he writes something. Oh, I would tell Martin. In a heartbeat, I would tell Martin, hey, man, cool it. Cool it with killing everyone, man. Some of us want to see him live.
1: Take a page out of uh, Stephanie Meyer's book and just give it a totally unrealistic ending where everyone survives. (laughs) You ever read Lewis? You want to give that a try, maybe? A little bit? (laughs) Find Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) You
0: know I would tell Martin to find Jesus in a heartbeat.
1: (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so, I mean... Getting getting back to his time at Toei, I mean, this earned him a lot more respect, um, and and he and fellow animator uh, Isao Takahata began to collaborate a lot more. I think Takahata was a little bit more advanced at the studio um, because he ended up uh, having his like. Feature directorial debut at some point when they were there,
0: mm-hmm. um, but
1: Takahata would be a really important person in his life. He would be a oh, yeah. lifelong friend, collaborator, and future business partner. Yeah, um, and then he he brought Miyazaki on to work.
0: Gay lover, maybe? I have to throw one in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay that's your one <laughs> if this is anyone's first episode this is a thing uh, Every,
0: everyone's got some sexual thing going on and I, and he doesn't though that's the thing yeah, is he doesn't there's so. no
1: evidence that this is a gay lover situation isn't there <laughs> business partners? partners no no <laughs> <laughs> but uh so takahata brought him on to to help with his um 1968 uh movie little norse prince which has like a billion different names uh also prince of the sun there's also like uh oh god horace or something it was oh, another like name is the one yeah that I knew about. okay yeah, yeah. I, it was very confusing because i saw it like called three different things yeah. all over the place um but yeah so Takahata, this was kind of like a, a double-edged sword for him because Takahata like blew out the the studio's budget and all the deadlines for the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it pretty much effectively ended his directorial career at Toei. Uh, he was not on good terms with with the higher ups there for the rest of his his time uh, working at the studio. Um, but it was good for Miyazaki; he got more hands-on experience there. Also worth noting, while at Toei, he met uh, Akemi Ota.
0: Well done. I would have said Akimi Ote, so...
1: I'm hoping mine is correct. (laughs)
0: Mine's (laughs) probably the correct one.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's going to kill me if it is. So, uh, Akimi Ote uh, was a fellow animator there. Mm -hmm. Uh, She'd been there longer. She was a little bit older. Uh, But they they fell in love Mm -hmm. after about one year of dating. One One year. Do you want to rant about this? No, I just want to point out
0: one year. What did I say in my in the last episode? Said two years. Did I say two years? I thought I, said I don't one know if year. that was
1: in the uh, last episode. I'm okay with one You year. said give it at least a year. There
0: it is. Yeah, Bet-
1: two is better.
0: Two is better, but they waited one year.
1: They waited one year and got married. Uh, at the time, he was 24, and originally they planned for her to keep working. She made more money than him. She was a really good animator. Um, with a, quote a mind of her own mm-hmm. uh, one of their co-workers drew a cartoon at some point showing the couple um, and it showed Miyazaki redrawing storyboards according to his wife's advice so yeah. she was like him she wasn't afraid of speaking out mm-hmm. um, but then when their sons were born they decided somebody had to stay at home and uh Japan had a pretty patriarchal family and employment structure back then. Yep. Uh, many women did work they in still, animation. They still
0: are that way. They still are. You, you can go on Google and type in, why aren't Japanese women having children? And, like, I remember that was, like, a big thing for, like, a full, like, year and a half people were, like, talking about.
1: It's a big thing for a long time because their population is aging rapidly because Japanese women are not having babies as right, much. Right,
0: because they want to have a career. And yeah. in their society, once you have a kid, you don't have ki- You don't have a career. Like, that. you're just done. Yeah. And so women are like, fine, all right, I'm not going to have kids I'm then. not
1: going to have kids then, yeah. So back then, uh, many women did work in animation, but they had to basically not get married or have children. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key employees at Studio Ghibli uh, joked about calling her memoir of her time at the studio – uh, the title would have been, Thanks to Miyazaki and Suzuki, I Wasn't Able to Get Married, which I thought was like <laughs> funny but tragic. It
0: is bad. It's sad, kind of.
1: So, uh, and the other uh, contributing factor was that Miyazaki's creativity and talent at that point was already pointing to him being very successful. Sure. Um, so ultimately, Akemi decided, or they both decided that she would be the one to stay home. Um, and I mean, at this point, do we want to talk about how he kind of sucked as a dad
0: yeah i let's touch on that and then let's let's get in because we're we're already running you know oh pretty my far God. Into, yeah i know you start talking about miyazaki and time flies man <laughs> uh let's let's talk about this real quick and then let's start to get into kind of each each of his his, his big, movies. big movies um and, and touch those and kind of what was happening at his time uh at, at his life in each of those times yeah he wasn't a great dad
1: he was not there most of the time and
0: and his kids have gone on record as saying we didn't like our dad
1: yeah so his son Goro um, became a director himself um, and has done some work affiliated with his dad but he has been very open about the fact that they did not have a good relationship he said his dad was a great director and a crappy father yeah Um. so he I mean he would just work crazy long hours yeah coming home after everybody was asleep and then on his few days off he would sleep yeah the whole day yeah um um, so Akimi really had to do everything herself.
0: But this, th- that was something that like he admired in people their
1: their dedication. Their
0: dedication. Like there's the story of the girl who worked for Studio Jubilee, and they would, and she would, they would, they were working on a story or something, and she would just like she would work till super late on all of these draws and and things like that. And then she would wake up in the morning. After everybody would tiptoe in, she
1: would sl- yeah. She would she sleep slept on the, in couch. the office.
0: Yeah, she would sleep on the couch. Everyone would tiptoe in to keep her from waking up. But she would always wake up, and she would always go in, and acknowledge and everybody, tea. and then make them tea with a smile and blah blah blah. And 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 he talked about how wonderful she was. And I'm just over here like fuck that shit, right? <laughs> and and I think that's such like because I did I did the same thing. I was like that's bullshit. Women should not be compared to to slaves and servants like that. And, and and you have
1: to have a smile after right, you've stayed up but, working all but night.
0: But <laughs> let, let's take one second. I did want to talk about this because this really impacted me. I thought about that for a little bit because nowhere nowhere in the book that we read did she say that Miyazaki said this is what she should have been doing as a woman. It was her job to stay late, work her ass off, and then smile serve us tea and get her fucking butt back to work he never made any reference like that all he said was that's a good woman right and I think I agree with him only in that look I don't expect Rebecca to have dinner ready for me at home when I get home I don't expect her to do the dishes or take care of the cats I don't expect her to to do that stuff But the fact that she does it, the fact that she makes me dinner and she she puts me to bed at night because I'm like working on so many things. And she's Tyler, you got to chill the fuck out. Let's go. Let's go to bed like she takes care of me. She and she does it lovingly. And like because of that, I can say my wife is a good woman. It's not sexist and it's not because I expect her to do it. It's because she is a good woman and that's what she does to show it.
1: This isn't his wife, though.
0: <laughs> right, I agree, but he's making the comment that that is a good woman, right? And so, or a like, good worker, or a good worker. But, but like,
1: I don't think he would have noted it as much if it was a man.
0: If the man was sleeping and I yeah, get up and make everybody tea, I, you don't think that he would?
1: Well, I don't think the man would make everybody tea. That seems so like either. kind of a patriarchal I, role. I, guess. I just, <laughs> I, I,
0: I underst- I have the exact same knee jerk reaction of like, that's fucking bullshit that she feels like she has to do that but at the same time i want to give credit where credit is due and there are good women out there who do things like this and the fact that they do this as to show that they are good women does not negate that they are good women (laughs)
1: No, there's nothing. I mean, there is something wrong with that worker. She should not have been. She should just that go, hard. Home. Just go home. Jesus Christ! Like I am, I totally disagree with his attitudes toward work. Like he really yeah. emphasizes the yeah. "your job is your life" thing. Yeah, I think that's incredibly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. It obviously. You know, I can say, I can his say family.
0: after reading this book, there is no way in fucking hell I could have worked for Miyazaki. No. Not even a little bit. He would I would have been one of the people that he would have said we had differences of opinions and he's not very reliable. Yeah. That's what he would have said about me guaranteed. And I would have said, Miyazaki's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and he's he demands too much of his workers and and that's not the way to treat people. But then Princess Mononoke comes out and everyone's like, Hey man. He made this, though. He
1: made this, though. Yeah. (laughs) Crappy dad, good producer and director. Yeah.
0: You cannot argue with the results that he got out of people. It's some good shit. (laughs) It just sucks. It just sucks. Did you have anything else on his fatherhood or manlyhood at all?
1: Not really. Uh, Just an apology to uh, Devani, uh, one of our our Patreons. She mentioned in the last episode, we mentioned that Tolkien was a good dad and just moved on. (laughs) (laughs) She was like, we need to hear more about the good dads. But Devani, nobody talks about the good dads. Nobody talks about the good stuff. We need to change our culture and start appreciating good dads more. Which is why I was bringing up the woman. She was a good woman. Yeah. Okay, everybody like appreciates good moms. Moms are like very oh, popular. I gotcha. We all like laud our mothers for all of their contributions. Nobody talks about the good dads. So biographers, get on it.
0: Get on it. Talk about them good dads. Miyazaki That's is what, not one of them. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and live my life so that one day I can write a memoir and it'll be like You'll I'm, talk about the i that dad one good dad. That'll be the name. I'm the good dad.
1: Nobody will believe it if it's a memoir. Right. You need to get somebody else to Trust write about me.
0: it. When I say I was a good dad, I was a good one. Eh? It'll be it'll be a memoir for my children. He was the good dad.
1: Right. Um, okay. So yeah. So moving on to some of the other projects, I guess. Um, in 1971, Miyazaki and Takahata left Toei, mm-hmm. um, and they worked at. Uh, they worked at a few different places. The first one was a production studio. Yeah, that's the name of it. Yeah, uh, that's Which not just one? me not knowing. A. a A Pro. <laughs> a Pro. Um, <laughs> one of the first projects that he was assigned to work on was asking the author of Pippi Longstocking for permission to turn the story into a film. He like drew dozens and dozens of sketches. Yeah, they,
0: they went all the they way. They went to Sweden. Yeah, they uh, flew over there. They were ready to do it,
1: and without even like looking at their proposal, she turned them down. Yeah. Uh, so that was disappointing. But it was his like first real time gonna in Europe. T-
0: we're going to have to talk about that in the episode about the author
1: of Pippi who wrote <laughs> Pippi
0: Longstocking. It's going to be like an Avengers-style meetup.
1: Ooh, I like that. Uh, but the, the trip wasn't a whole waste. It was one of his first times in Europe. Um, and he would become really fascinated with Europe and instill that in some of his future movies. Mm. Um, and then some of the highlights from, from their time working uh, at Apro include uh, the Panda Go Panda shorts and know. and uh, Miyazaki's full-length directorial debut, uh, Castle of Cagliostro, which was right. critically acclaimed, like very good movie. And I
0: would love to go into it, but we're here for what he wrote, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> like I, I want to get into those stories. And seriously, it, she spent so long talking about this damn movie, the Castle of Clig- Clig- R- Cagliostro, whatever. <laughs> It's super interesting, and I will probably go watch it later, but we're here to focus on what on his writings and, and the things that he created. And this is not a character that he created. He took it and did his own thing with it, didn't create it. Yeah. So let's get into his first movie that he wrote and directed, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind.
1: So this was in 1982. He kind of went back to his, his roots with manga, um, and he was writing stories for the magazine, which was new at the time, *Animage* um and yeah so this project uh kind of became a labor of love for him it tells the story of nausicaa uh, a princess on a post-apocalyptic earth uh, who becomes involved in a war between kingdoms while an environmental disaster threatens humankind
0: you did great that was perfect
1: yeah yeah i was like reading the summary of it
0: it's these these are the
1: the the central themes kind of um and this is a huge project yeah he had uh, completed two volumes, basically, when Animaji's editors, including Toshio Suzuki, who would later become executive producer at um, Studio Ghibli, um, they pointed out that the books were pretty much ready-made for a film version, mm-hmm. which I sort of disagree with because then he notes that, or, or the author of the biography notes, that Nausicaä was a super long, complex manga um, with like a ton of different things going on. There were like political themes, environmental themes, yeah. all of that. And distilling it down to a two-hour movie was really, really freaking hard for yeah, him. Yeah,
0: he didn't have an easy time. I think And he they wasn't were,
1: finished writing it.
0: Yeah, I think what they were talking about is more just like the, the, the idea of it. Like, like it's like, a good story. It's a good story, and there's a lot of elements that you can take from it. And he did have a hard time because he had to simplify the story while maintaining at least some of what Na- Nausicaa... What about Nausicaa made it interesting, which was political intrigue and environmental stuff and the sci fi, you know, the sci fi world that you're living in. And he had to kind of tie all three of those in together. And that's what he did. Uh,
1: and one of the other notable things was that at the time he was working for a production company called Topcraft and he didn't like the staff there. He didn't trust them to like bring his vision to life. Mm. So he brought on his own people, including uh, persuading Takahata to be the producer of the the film
0: so so he releases it in 1984 and it's you know it did it's okay I- it did okay uh and so they want to bring it to america because why the fuck not it's going to do super well in america right and america knows how to treat animation so let's just give it to them and let them do it no nothing bad will happen to nausicaa in the valley of the wind am Married i right Her
1: voice bad things happened to <laughs> Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Yeah. So they released it in the United States, uh, I think a year later, uh, as Warriors of the Wind. Um, John Lasseter, a big-time guy at Pixar, who later worked on Spirited Away's release, described in an interview as it was butchered, basically. Mm. It had confusing edits, they cut a ton of shit out, and the bad dubbing made it basically unwatchable I in the US. I want to watch it just I, yeah. to see
0: how bad it is. Oh. <sighs> Because now, when you go by *Nausicaa Valley of the Wind*, you get a really good movie with Shia LaBeouf. Oh,
1: they redid it.
0: Oh, they made it. They like they they ended up bringing it to America and and doing it. It's as *Nausicaa Valley of the Wind* redubbed like, in like 2000 something, early 2000s. Good
1: because uh, Miyazaki was heartbroken over yeah. this. Like, this was this was terrible, and it really um, turned him bitter against any future Western releases. Yeah. Um. So. It's it's relative success though in Japan like again it it wasn't a blockbuster but it did okay. It did inspire Miyazaki and Takahata to strike out on their own. Yep. Um so in 1985 they launched Studio Ghibli. Um and I I guess you can kind of decide how long we want to go on all of these movies because there are a lot. We're only the only ones I listed here are ones that Miyazaki directed. That's because yeah. Takahata did his own stuff too. Yeah. And I think they had other uh, producers brought on later on.
0: And that's what I was saying earlier. I would, I want to just let's, we, we're already almost an hour in. So let's go over this in the next 15 minutes. Let's talk about these movies uh, very quickly. Studio Jubilee launched in 1985. The first movie is Laputa, Castle in the Sky. Um, and uh, people didn't like it.
1: Yeah, it it made about two-thirds what Nausicaa did, um And there are various factors there. The Miyazaki brand wasn't established yet; they had just started their studio, Um, and also the target audience for them was middle schoolers and their families. That wasn't trending in Japan at the time. Animators Mm. were mostly aiming for males in their teens and twenties, and animation was getting really edgy. Yeah, there was a lot of violence and like sexual themes.
0: uh, Akira coming out like that was huge, and that was intense and scary. So,
1: and one of the things that I found interesting about Miyazaki was he hated this. He didn't like bad characters, he wanted to create children, child characters, that were believable and engaging yep. and interesting, but also, like, fundamentally good and moral people.
0: Because he was, he believed that he was the kid that was a good kid. And that even came up in an interview where somebody said, nobody would be like this. Nobody would be this. Uh, I think it was Ford Castle in the Sky, the main, char- the main guy character. You know, he's just this good kid, and he's trying to do his best. And they're like, nobody would be like that. Nobody's that good. And he's like, bullshit, nobody's that good. I was that kid. That's me when I was a kid. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. No, I'm so sorry. That's not in the Sky. That's my neighbor Totoro. Yeah, that's the older sister in Totoro. So, like he he argued with people. Like, no, there are good kids out there, and w- it's worth telling their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where you see another mother complex come in with the uh, with the pirate mom, uh, literally her pirate cult calls her mom and uh, and she is both a good person and a bad, bad person and someone that you don't like but she also does the right thing so it's very complex with him and his mother characters.
1: And that's the thing with all of his villains as well. Like even the bad characters have some good or like redeem themselves at the end.
0: But more specifically all of the older women characters generally either start out bad and become good or they start out in a way that you're not sure of and then you see them for their badness, while still wanting them to succeed in some way. And and we can get into a little bit of that when we get to it.
1: Yeah. So the next movie to to come out from him was 1988, My Neighbor Totoro, um, and this was like he really wanted something lighthearted and happy in contrast again to the increasingly dark and violent stories that was coming out of, that were coming out of Japanese media. Um, and the storyline on this one, like you alluded to, centers on. Um, Two young sisters whose mother is very ill. Yep. Um, and that's much like his own childhood. Um, this movie when it came out was not a blockbuster right away, but it did like kind of over time seep into the national attention. Yeah. And one thing that really helped was the merchandising angle. Like yeah. the Totoro stuffed animals and stuff took off yep. at some point. Um and really helped Ghibli financially and like just in the public eye. Um, and as a result, Totoro is is the logo for the studio.
0: Yeah, man. And and there's a lot to break into Totoro. So, man, we should have done Miyazaki in two parts, but unfortunately (laughs) we're not going to uh, because there's so much to break down in his movies. And um, I think, honestly, if what we can do is prime you for going and watching his movies, then that's what I would like to do. And you can see a lot of his uh, uh, nature, um, utopian nature themes that come out of Totoro, that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, after that is 1989's Kiki's Delivery Service, which I have never seen or know anything about. It was <laughs> on my list to watch, but I got caught up with all the others, so I didn't. End up <laughs> I watching will say
1: it. I I actually would probably like to watch this one and my neighbor Totoro. Um, Kiki's Delivery Service, from what I gather, is the story of a young witch who has to go to live on her own in the city to kind of prove herself and become a, a full witch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of her story of trying to find happiness while also dealing with loneliness and isolation in a strange place. This movie almost didn't happen because the studio was struggling so much financially. Yeah. They hadn't had any big hits yet, Um, but they, they did it. And Kiki was its first major hit and kind of turned the studio's fortunes around. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Uh, so this, is this the one that you said earlier?
1: No, that one's later. Okay, okay. I just, I remembered that Kiki's, I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cute. It's definitely
0: like, on my list. And and just a quick thing, like we could have gone and rented all these movies from Amazon or bought them and it would cost a fortune. So instead we went on to HBO Max and we just got one month for HBO Max because they oh, have really? everything <laughs> from Studio Ghibli. So um, so that's how we're watching everything.
1: Very nice.
0: Up next is Porco Rosso from 1992, an adventure story about a World War II flying ace. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, World War One flying ace who has been cursed to have the face of a pig.
1: And curses are a big theme in yeah. uh, in his his movies. This is also
0: pigs are a big thing. Also in pigs movies. are. He, yeah, he he goes back to pigs a lot like for the next like decade you see pigs over and over and pigs over again pigs
1: everywhere so this one was interesting because it was originally supposed to be a a short in-flight entertainment movie um based on his own light-hearted manga series that featured pigs as heroes and that was primarily because he just wanted a break from all of his work on Studio Ghibli's uh most recent feature films he was burned out because he does he throws so much of himself into all of his movies he does a lot of in-betweening
0: still yeah (laughs) he still did in-betweening for his he owns the goddamn company and he's doing in-betweens
1: he's like the boss from hell um but yeah so he was super stressed out after all of this and he was like you know what i'm just gonna do an easy 40 minute in-flight entertainment film uh Subsequently, he gets really fucking into it, uh, adds a whole bunch of characters and plot lines, (laughs) and turns it into a 90-minute movie. (laughs)
0: Yep. And then this is my favorite one. 1997 gave us my favorite animated movie of all time, Princess Mononoke. Um, And, uh, man, it's so good. And it's the reason why today we can talk about Miyazaki, I believe at least. It's the reason why we have... People who went back and redid Nausicaa Valley of the Wind and with, you know, actors at that time because it was such a good movie and it was done so well in America, like for the American audience, even that that it just Miyazaki was able to have a platform in more than just Japan. And I I don't know. I love it. I love it so much. T- so tell us all about it. This yeah. was
1: the one that we teased in the last episode because I started watching this, I think, before I knew that it was Miyazaki or something. Like, my boyfriend yeah. suggested watching it, and I was like, okay. And then, like, 10 minutes in, it gets super freaking violent, and I was like, I was not prepared for this. I yeah. thought this was a kid's movie, which no. it is, and it's, well, at some point, he, like, he waffled back and forth between, like, oh, kids shouldn't watch this, and then he's like, oh, well, kids absolutely should watch this.
0: Yeah, all right. I, I guess so. I would let my... 11 year old watch this that's the age that i will let my my kid watch it it's 11 years old
1: i mean i was watching lord of the rings at 12 and that's like live action violence so i feel like this is this is fine yeah but startling when you're expecting like a happy-go-lucky kids movie and then suddenly arms get chopped off so
0: princess mononoke is about um a young prince I know it's confusing it's a young prince who's the main character in this one he uh, gets cursed after defending his family and his his clan Uh, so he goes off just to kind of he actually goes off with no real purpose other than I'm gonna find something uh, to try and figure this out and one of the one of the clues that he has is uh, a bullet from a gun that was shot Um, and um it came from the west or the east i can't quite remember and then eventually he finds his way to uh, a village where people are turning the mountain into a like a, a village where they produce guns and metal and bullets and things and then subsequently there are the forest spirits and and creatures that don't like this so they are attacking that village And he meets uh, a girl named San, who is known as Princess Mononoke. Uh, She is is adopted by wolves, wolf spirits, and so she's like a barbarian, scary chick, but he kind of falls in love with her. And by kind of, I mean like immediately, very quickly falls in love with her. She's
1: pretty hot, even though she's covered in blood most of the time. And she's voiced
0: by Claire Danes, which I'm not not going to go on record as saying that I have a, a celebrity crush, but, you know, you could uh, That's funny. Claire I Danes. would
1: not have uh, predicted Claire Danes.
0: I think it was I think it was this and then Stardust. Oh, okay. Stardust got to That me. checks out. Yeah. Uh and then uh and so then they have to work together to help this forest and help the people who live uh, in the village because it's not just about the spirits and the forest. It's also about humanity itself.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that was surprising to me about it was because initially it feels like a very strongly like anti-industrial and environmentalist film, which it it is, but then also that they're trying to help the people who are destroying the environment. Uh, And I think that's one of the things that's pretty consistent across his work is kind of the complex layers of of humanity. Um, And even the bad guys are never really all bad.
0: Uh, So some big stuff happened during the production of this, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so he basically got to a breaking point during during production on this. Um, Suzuki remembers a moment when uh, Miyazaki finally exploded after just taking on too many things. He was correcting storyboards. Like you said, he was in betweening, even yeah. though he was the director. He was, um, you know, matching up the music with the story. He was watching over the vocals, uh, the vocal tracking. Um, and. Once they were done with production, he was giving tons of interviews and helping market the film as it was rolled out. Yep. He was burned out, um, and then subsequently the next year, uh, January 1998, he quit Studio Ghibli to retire. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he's like in his fifties, yeah, late fi- yeah. lateish fifties, yeah. um, which is still like pretty young, but uh, he'd been working uh, nonstop.
0: Season. Yeah.
1: Um, But less than a week later, director Yoshifumi Kondo, who was um, like uh, Miyazaki's heir apparent, died of an aneurysm at the age of 46. So he stepped back in to direct Spirited Away.
0: Yep. And I think with the primer of Princess Mononoke, the the Western world now knows about this this anime director and and he has this this great quality of being able to mix eastern and and western things this became huge spirited away was a huge hit and people went nuts
1: over it yeah and this was the one that um the pixar guy Lasseter really pushed for bringing to the u.s as well um spirited away had the highest box office gross of any film released in japan until demon slayer came out this past december yeah i have no idea what demon slayer is about but that's a good like almost 20 year run for spirited away um it got globally successful. It won the Japanese Academy Prize for Picture of the Year and the Academy Award in America for Best Animated Feature, which was an unprecedented honor for a Japanese movie to beat American films and win an Oscar. But he did not go to LA to accept the award because he was mad at the United States for invading Iraq.
0: Right. So he's starting to really push his his beliefs and and his stuff. Um, Studio Jubilee starts to release in in Uh, company magazine where they're it's basically just propaganda for leftist ideas and they just they do interviews with people pushing leftist ideas and this is what he believes so this is what he's going to push and it's his company so he has all the right to do so right
1: Yep and he got uh, a little more like anti-war in following movies too which we'll get to I also wanted to mention he was this was like a very angsty time for him too he was like melting down within the company uh overhearing rumors that spirited away success was only due to the all-out marketing campaign led by Suzuki and uh, Pixar's John Lasseter in the U.S. Mm. And he got really butthurt about this. At one point, he lost his temper with a staffer and declared there would be no more marketing at all for the next movie. Oh, shit. So he was... Uh, maybe getting a little high and mighty yeah Uh, if
0: it's not me then it's nobody if I can't have the credit then no one gets it no one gets it I mean I get it when you're putting so much work and effort into somebody you don't want something to just be taken away like all of oh yeah it was a good movie I guess but really the only people the only reason why people like it is because of the marketers well
1: I mean, but marketing is such an important part of movies anyway. Like, sure. nobody's going to watch some random movie just because but it exists. you can't market anything
0: if it doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, you can't market anything if it doesn't exist. But, like, it's a balance there. Yeah, you need, I agree. You need to promote your work. People aren't just going to find it.
0: So did Howl's Moving Castle, our next movie in 2004, have any marketing at all? Not really. No, it did. Still did I. <laughs> and yet it's still one of most people's favorite favorite movies. I know for Rebecca it's her favorite movie probably because it's Christian Bale who voices Al. <laughs> um but uh but it's a it's a great movie and it's based off of a book that that he read um mm-hmm. back in the day and it's very much uh has the uh, European uh setting more than the traditional eastern you know J- yeah Japanese it was setting. by an
1: english author and i'm spacing on her name oh yeah um, me too. i
0: had her on her list at one point to do oh as, really yeah just because how's moving castle um so
1: when he he adapted it but he uh, added a lot more of a war theme to yeah, it than and she this originally is had. You said
0: it earlier he in this movie you see so much of the anti-war and anti-invasion and you know like the anti-patriot sort of um, theme running all the way through it
1: mm-hmm uh and then the next one 2008 ponyo yeah i've not seen this one it's the fish one right i saw it when
0: (laughs) it came out and i haven't rewatched it because i was like oh it's a little girl with a mermaid i'm good i'm good
1: (laughs) very very good movie by all accounts though um probably probably not on my list uh the weird thing about that one was i think three years later was when the giant tsunami hit japan so like it kind of that kind of changed his mood going forward Mm. he was like i'm not going to do just another like fluffy kids movie which was kind of an about face from his attitude toward movie making before he was like i just want to make good movies for kids then later in his career he wants to get more serious and have more of a message yeah um so in early 2009 he starts writing another manga this one's called the wind rises and that one okay this is the one that I actually want to watch, because it tells the mostly true story of uh, Jiro Horikoshi, um, and he designed the Mitsubishi A6M-0 fighter plane, which was a, a big deal in World War II. In 2013, the film version came out and was commercially successful, but it was also really controversial because it dug up a lot of painful memories um, in Japan Mm -hmm. over the Zero's role in World War II and their own actions at the time. And it um, caused some controversy with his Korean fans because they were like, hey, like the Zero was used to you know invade Korea Um, and so it just had a lot of a lot of controversy around it critics argued it glorified Japan's military and um, the the plane's superiority and whitewashed the war as a whole
0: oh yeah because you know Miyazaki's definitely gonna yeah so he's gonna definitely make war look better than it was and he loves Japan so
1: so my understanding of the movie is that it actually ends like before the war it's just like the manufac or the design and manufacturing yeah. and it's just about this guy who built a really cool plane right um but this is like yet another one of Miyazaki's contradictions as an artist and as a human. Like, yes, he's a pacifist. He he protests war. He speaks out against it. He has all of these anti-war themes in his movies, but he's also really into war machinery and planes. Yeah. I mean, and- he
0: grew up loving to draw planes and tanks and things. Like he just he loves that that drawing style.
1: Yeah. So I think I don't I don't know if critics who say it glorifies war are like being completely Honest with themselves because it's it's not a mystery that he's a pacifist, right? Um, so this is one that I I plan to watch because I think it'll be interesting to see how it is presented. Um, let's see.
0: This is I mean, and this is really the end of his of his career as far as like big stuff that you know movies and things and and again there's so much to dissect and there's so much that he did even that we didn't get into like he wrote a lot of movies these are the ones that he wrote and directed right Mm -hmm. so uh movies like um from up on poppy hill are yeti which was a good movie i did like that one um whisper of the heart is one of my wife's favorites um, those three movies he wrote only and then he just let somebody else direct them so these are stories that he came up with and, and wanted to do and Arietti's a really good one Whisper of the Heart is a really good story and it even warranted a kind of sequel and that he didn't do anything for and that's the return of the cat basically they were just like oh hey do you want to do this and he's like yeah alright that's cool I guess <laughs> like that's it that's literally all he did So that's
1: all his involvement
0: so um so that he he is he is somebody that i respect because he has put everything he has into creating not just a story but so many stories that that none of them even tie to each other none of them do the little thing that everybody likes to do nowadays where it's like oh, oh this guy does this and this. and if you do it's like the, the pixar stuff you know like it's just they're all their own things and he puts 100% of his time and effort into that and yeah it made him a bad dad and it made him look at other people in a way that i probably 100% disagree in that to be a good person you have to work your ass off and give up life in order to produce something. And he did that time and time and time again.
1: Yeah, he was pretty judgmental of everybody. Like there was the one point in there when she was talking about like his disdain for young people in particular um, during like the eighties and nineties, oh. Japan's bubble economy when yeah. everybody had a ton of money and they were like spending it on materialistic things, and he would just complain about how the youth weren't working hard even, enough.
0: Even the the youth from before he was born, he would judge yeah. because <laughs> there was the whole gener the, his parents' generation where they were like working people and like. Like they worked they they had a different outlook on life than he did and he didn't like it even though he represented some of those people in his works and so it was uh, it was it's pretty crazy He's full of small contradictions that are very interesting and not in the same way that like um, Charles Dickens was where Charles Dickens I believe was a contradictory man who held some weird beliefs but didn't follow through on a lot of them. I uh, I think that Miyazaki held a lot of beliefs and he he pushes for those beliefs, but there are small things that he not I don't even know what the word is. He's willing to accept small things about people so that they can be a character in his life. Mm. You know, um because he understands story he understands characters and characters are good characters have contradictions and good characters are not just one thing you you can be a bad person and be a good mother
1: i guess that makes sense because that's really the only way that cuz he writes so much about child and parent relationships yeah. in his movies that it surprised me that he didn't see that in his own life he wasn't like hey maybe i should Be there a little bit more for my sons yeah Um, but yeah he he was full of those contradictions
0: yeah absolutely so uh, I I think it's I think that he is uh, genuinely a genius I I really do believe that he is actual like genius level intellect uh, and he is an artist who has been able to do more than what a lot of artists are capable of because you know you look at a director just a normal live action director and it's like oh that's an artist or that's a genius and it's like yeah in one respect it is but it doesn't compare to like you pick up a camera you hold it at an angle and you press record and you capture that that's very reductive but that's the truth there's a lot of lighting there's a lot of post-production there's a lot of storytelling that goes into it but imagine having to do all that and you're actually physically drawing that Every at the same single time. Frame.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many of these movies took five years to yeah. to complete. Um, I did want to just to r- wrap it up sort of. Um, again, in September of 2013, he pulled the retirement stunt. Yeah. He had a press conference and everything and was like, you know, I've talked about retiring so many times over the years. So you might doubt me now, but I'm serious this time. Uh, he, he wanted to focus on the Ghibli Museum. Uh, and, and going on walks and all that stuff but he did hope that his wife would keep making him lunch boxes every day like she had been um, and then the next year Suzuki announced that Studio Ghibli would take a pause to reevaluate and restructure after Miyazaki had left but in 2016 he comes out of retirement again to yep. work on a movie titled How Do You Live which is based on a, a novel um, the film was at one point supposed to be released around the 2020 Tokyo Olympics as we know a little thing called coronavirus happened and that uh canceled the olympics so as of like uh december i think suzuki said 60 animators were working on the film about 36 minutes had been completed and this is a a production company that does like two hour movies traditionally um so it might take three more years to finish so miyazaki is 80 years old now and back out of retirement for like the third time
0: yeah it's insane he's crazy yeah he is uh, and he's that's just his mentality i think <laughs> it's hard for a lot of especially people that have been doing it their whole life how do you just stop he and you know? he's
1: a control freak too he's probably yeah. sitting at home like oh, f- they're doing it fucking they're wrong it i gotta so go wrong. do it
0: i gotta make sure it's done right yeah, yeah it's crazy <laughs> um i highly highly high what's the what okay so you've seen which movies now
1: so I saw the the cat returns or whatever, uh-huh. which is not written by him. Right. Um, but I saw Spirited Away when I was in college, uh-huh. um, and uh, Princess Mononoke more recently. Okay. I want to do Totoro, probably Kiki's and um, the War One.
0: I think that that's good. I honestly highly recommend Howl's. Okay. If 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 I ha- if you've never watched anything from Miyazaki, my recommendation, honest to God, do Howl's Moving Castle first. Really? Yeah, because there's there's enough to it that's like oh it's kind of weird, but enough that you can grasp as Americans at least or Western culture. I know we have people in New Zealand, so I'm sorry you're not technically Western, right? They'd be more Eastern at this point from no, the way they're that basically the world in Japan, works. right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: wow. <What's a> map? <laughs>
0: anyway, I love New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, so we we uh, if you've never watched anything from from uh, Miyazaki, I highly recommend Howl's because there's enough that you can cling to um, that you'll understand it, and then enough weirdness that you'll be like, oh, that's kind of weird and interesting. Uh, then I recommend Totoro and uh, Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke is the first animated film or anime, not animated film, anime that I ever watched. Uh, I had watched, like, Dragon Ball Z as a kid at the TV show, but, like, that doesn't count to me because it's not – I'm talking, like, movies, oh, okay. right, not TV shows. Um, and it's – to me, Dragon Ball Z is on the same level as, like, animated Batman. <laughs> so, uh, what? It's true. It's a great show. So, uh, and – and but Princess Mononoke is so near and dear to my heart. It's just a beautiful story, beautiful art, and and I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, And then I would suggest going into other things like things that you can trust Miyazaki with, you know, some weird shit like uh, Spirited Away gets really weird, like really weird, man. That might have
1: been a weird one for me to start with. Because yeah. I remember just being totally confused the whole time.
0: Yeah. Nausicaä and the Valley of the Wind is a really good movie, too. But it's because it's a little bit older. It's his first movie. Um, There's a lot of um, there's a lot of explanations to things or uh what's the word um
1: like um exposition
0: exposition yes there's so much exposition and it. it's kind of like ooh
1: <laughs> <laughs> i watched the trailer for that one and it had some like 80s music in the yeah, background i was yeah. like <laughs> so
0: so for round 1 howls moving castle round 2 um uh princess mononoke totoro and then spirited away nasica and then if you really want to dig deep things like the wind rises and uh the whisper of the heart um those kind of um i'm i'm watching castle in the sky again right now which i think after now watching it again as an adult 100 my kids will grow up watching that movie it's so perfect for kids um that I, i can't wait to to show it to them so um no big sermon here i don't i don't I disagree with some stuff that he views and how he treats people. But honestly, he he just puts his head down and he just does his work. Like, literally, that's his whole thing is that he just just works his ass off, man. That's all he's doing. So that's it.
1: Well, uh, a little teaser for our next episode. We're doing another author who was born in Japan, um, but lived his whole life in Britain and really considers himself English more than sure. anything. Um, Kazuo Ishiguro. There you go. Uh, who won the Nobel Prize. And I just finished reading his most recent um, novel, Claire and the Sun. Very good. Uh, this author ties in very well with my, my bi-weekly plug for submissions for our sci-fi uh, <laughs> there we go. episode. So please, please send your flash fiction to us um, by April 15th is the deadline. And you can send it to us via Gmail at lewisandlovecraft@gmail.com. gmail.com. It's, oh, my God, 500 to 700 words. Yes. Yeah. 500 to 700 words, sci-fi theme, uh, which can be pretty broad, too. Yeah. Like, I was originally very nervous because, of course, Tyler and I have to write something for this. Yeah. And I have never written sci-fi before. But then I realized that there's a lot of different facets to this. There's so. so many
0: things you can do. You can do spaceships, robots, mutants. You can do whatever you want. It's all sci Everything's sci-fi right so i i'm i really i highly recommend if you haven't ever written anything please try this try this we had people submit uh to our halloween one last this last year and it was the first time they had written anything ever and they did such a good job i i think that if you're someone who you've thought about writing something and you just haven't been able to put words to page yet this is such a good chance to do it um Because you will get feedback. We will tell you what we think. Honestly, I pride myself on being honest with my criticisms and I know Hannah can be honest with her criticisms because she's been a little too honest sometimes <laughs> with me
1: I won't be that honest with you guys but I mean that being said I don't we have not gotten a story submission that, that was I bad. don't like
0: like yeah it, they're all good and you'll you'll have people reading them that that they're gonna be good readers and so it's it's going to sound great and you're gonna have something that you can hold on to for a very long time of my story was read. My story is in this podcast.
1: Yeah, you can send a link or like there's a Google result when you mm-hmm. when you search your name, which is something that when we had um, Sean Cosby or S.A. Cosby on yeah. for correspondence, he mentioned like, hey, just get your stuff out there so that when people search for you, You're there's there. results. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so just write something, 500 to 700 words. It's really, it's not hard. Um, I, it might seem daunting, but it's really not. Once you start, you'll be surprised how many words you have to cut out because it's gonna be too long. Um,
1: and it doesn't take very long. I The last time too, I did though. it, like for our Halloween episode, I stressed about it for days. And then once I sat down and wrote it, I wrote it in like 30 minutes. Yeah,
0: it doesn't take much. And, and I, if you are an experienced writer, use this as an opportunity to just try something else. Um, so please, I, I, I want you to succeed more than I want our show. I'm gonna talk <laughs> for half an hour, whether you send something in or not we'll have a show it's gonna be a
1: long episode
0: (laughs) but i want you to succeed and i'm excited to meet and see new authors and new writers and new stories so please i i beg you take this opportunity to write something in
1: and in the meantime tyler where can people uh check us out
0: well you already said that they can email us at lewis and lovecraft at gmail.com so there's that if you're not writing a flash fiction for uh this for hannah's sci-fi episode you can still write to us whether it's your comments on things or a, a story that you want us to check out maybe a read on the show uh maybe your review of uh studio jubilee store movie or whatever we talk about please just talk to us it's totally cool we love it we want to see it you can also talk to us on facebook at lewis and lovecraft um facebook.com slash lewis and lovecraft uh, you can go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com and see pictures that we have and, you know, kind of browse around there. And you can go to our Instagram, at Lovecraft where I pretend like I post every day, but in reality, it's like every other day. So... Uh, you can see random pictures that we post of things. Sometimes, if you go to our Facebook page and you want to join that community, and you post something, and I think it's hilarious, and I haven't posted anything on Instagram that oh, you day, steal it. I will <laughs> steal that and post it on Instagram. Yeah, so, we do
1: memes on our Facebook group, so uh, yeah. join the group and enjoy some nerdy memes. Yeah. Um and as always we want to thank Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. He does all sorts of of music in different genres so definitely check him out at soundcloud.com/jake bassin that's spelled b as in boy a s s e n
0: yes and don't forget to subscribe so you can follow us on all of our adventures whether we're doing our deep dive episodes or our correspondence episodes which i don't know if you got to listen to the sarah jones episode but that i was want
1: you so bad I so fun to
0: hang out with her and if you haven't checked out her her podcast you really got to i didn't even listen to the first season when i had already talked i'd only listened to the third season the first season's all in portland it's so freaking cool. Well, not in Portland, but all around all Oregon. All about Portland. It's so freaking awesome. So go check out her show. It's uh, Lit Laugh- Dark, right? Uh, Laughing in the Dark podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Um, and rate and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's really important. We we don't yeah. have that many reviews, and there's that one negative one dragging us down. So yeah, stick and- it to the people who like Mr. James and give us five stars. <sighs> yeah,
0: the, the iTunes is great. Please, please. Go write a review on iTunes. If you do, I'll send you a, a sticker or something. We'll figure that out. Or on Podchaser. We have zero reviews on Podchaser. We have, I think, no, maybe one follower on Podchaser. And Podchaser is the place to be right now. It's like the IMDB of podcasts.
1: So, oh, you sold me on it now.
0: Yeah, so go and review us on Podchaser. But Hannah, what's better than Podchaser?
1: hmm maybe a human interaction
0: oh is that a thing that you
1: can do you can you can tell a friend in person or over the phone or over instant messenger or whatever it doesn't else. matter Yeah. tell it doesn't them about matter. our show
0: just tell someone just tell one person and then uh you know it will be a good thing to happen so and don't forget you can support us on Patreon oh yeah that too we have two, two patrons right now we have Devani Anjali and we have Gage
1: And we appreciate them very much.
0: It's Gage Runkle. I just thought it'd sound cooler. I
1: I wasn't sure if you forgot how to pronounce his name, so I was trying to cover for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just deciding do I want to just end with Gage? Gage. Nah, Gage Runkle. Uh, Those are our patrons. If you want us to shout your name out and forever be indebted to you in a way that will not be in any way uh, possible for us to help, do anything for yeah repay (laughs) thank you that's the one word I was looking for you did a great
1: definition (laughs) thank you
0: go support us on Patreon you can do so at one dollar I think do we have one dollar or is it three dollars I think we do yeah Uh, for a minimal amount of money for the cost of one coffee a month you can support us or for the cost of ten coffees a month
1: you could really support us you could really
0: support us Um, it's all appreciated we really like uh, knowing that people out there like our show so if you like our show let us know
1: Woo-hoo.
0: And that's it. And I don't, I know nothing about our next author, so I can't make any reference as we go out. I was Can just going to tell the,
1: the people to never let me go.
0: All right. Well, I don't know what that means, but I guess that's what we're doing. You now. should read
1: that book. I got to <laughs> read
0: that book.